Good morning. Joining me now, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. Hey, Al, how are things over in Heartland? Did you get a lot of rain yesterday? Yeah, we got uh, just short of an inch here. So oh, my we goodness. We were on kind of the low end of a lot of people. and We're wet here, so I don't know that we were real anxious to get a lot more rain. I know there's a lot of uh, folks who are crying for rain, so I oh. wish we could. We always wish we could share it fairly with everyone. You know, I wish there was a switch you could turn on and off. You know, if you when you need it, an inch a week is perfect. My sister over in River Falls, western northwestern Wisconsin, said they got over eight inches. Oh, my goodness. Too much at one time, anyway. I can kind of tell that I clean the gutters, but, man, I don't know. I got one now that's plugged up for some reason, so I got to climb around there and see <laughs> if I can do that it seemed i don't know what to it's just i have misbehaving gutters and i know I, last time i mentioned this i got a call from a guy selling those uh, <laughs> gutter helmets right. he was very nice and he listens and he says this is what you need and i said yeah yeah if you know if you need somebody just to uh, try out your new products to see if they work I, i'm your guy but i do want to say thank you to gary johnson before i forget uh, Gary Johnson, just thank you for caring about a bird, and it's really neat that you care. And I hope really good things happen to you because of that. What did he do? Oh, he uh, was taking a bird up to the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center that was nesting in a cavity uh, uh, on on his house, where apparently they were doing some work or hadn't finished quite yet, and uh, birds were nesting in there, and he was taking it up to uh, to Roseville, and that's. Uh, that's quite an undertaking and just really nice of somebody to care that much. So I, I really appreciate him. You know, the the signs spoke of rain um, yesterday because they say if birds fly low, then rain we shall know. And uh, as you know, the local atmosphere sprung a leak, so I moved under a large tree. I was outside in an attempt to stay dry. And I shifted slowly around the trunk as the rain tracked my current location. I found rain is like uh, smoke around a campfire. It finds you when you're under a tree. And the leaves will bear so much rain on them before tipping over and dropping this huge amount on me. So I don't know if I stayed dry under there. I I will say the mosquitoes were tolerable. There weren't many of them uh, in there so if that was a good thing and during the rain i listened to a red-eyed vireo and it it sang uh, pretty much incessantly and there was a in 1952 there was a lady named louise lawrence and she counted the number of songs sung by a single red-eyed vireo on territory north of toronto and he sang 22,197 songs, oh. 22,197 in 14 hours. Oh, my. And my dad called these guys preacher birds, and they either repeatedly ask and answer its own question, it's counting the leaves, or it says, look up over here, see me up here. They're really neat little birds, and they are uh, pretty common, so... A lot of people have them around their yards or their parks. Uh, a red-bellied woodpecker was feeding under the feeder, and that the first confirmed sighting of this species in Minnesota was in the late 1800s, and they're pretty common now as well. 
A Eurasian collared dove fed below the feeder, and um, I think they're really pretty. They were introduced in the Bahamas in the 1970s, I believe it was, and they were in Florida by the 1980s. And then all of a sudden they rapidly colonized most of North America, and they have prominent white patches on the tail. They have dark-tipped wings, a black collar at the nape of the neck, and is chunkier than a morning dove. And they have a mournful call, and it's shorter and more frequent than the morning doves. Uh, Are they related? uh, Yeah, they sure are. They are both doves. And the uh, Eurasian collared dove species name oh, is comes from Greek mythology and was named after a servant girl who was transformed into a dove by the gods to escape her unhappy treatment. Yeah, the gods, those Greek gods, were they were quite a bunch. They would torture somebody to death and then turn them into some kind of uh, animal or bird to make up for it. Uh, these guys like millet, like a lot of doves. And there have been studies on the interactions between collared doves and other species, and they have not yet shown any negative impact on populations of mourning doves. And that was a great concern as how they would impact mourning doves. Uh, C.E. Vallum of Albert Lee called, and he was he said in the place he's living. On one of the window ledges, there's a robin nesting. I said they had three young ones. He said apparently they booted one of the young ones out pretty early, and the other two stayed in there much longer. And now he said it looks like they might be using that same nest, and he was wondering if it's the same pair of birds as doing this. Um, I have baby robins and teenage robins here on the lawn, what happens with these guys, females build the nests, and then they incubate the three to five eggs for 12 to 14 days. The male has no brood patch, so he brings food. The nestling stage is 13 days, and the young ones are able to fly in 14 to 16 days. So you can all see the problem there. You jump out of the nest, you're 13 days old. Well, you can't fly you got to wait a day, maybe three days, before you can fly. So it is a perilous time for those guys. They will have two or three broods each year. I used to say they typically build a new nest, and I think I'll probably still say that. But if the first nest was successful, a robin will often put a new floor on that nest and raise another brood there. If they don't have any success, then she will build another nest. So they're pretty cool birds. I've got a question about the babies, and I think we've talked about this before, but remind me, if you see a baby robin or, or baby bird that's fallen out of the nest, should you put it back or should you, you know, try to nourish it? Or, or what should you do? Maybe you can't find yeah. a nest, for example, even. Yeah, that's the problem is finding the nest. If you put a, a, a robin, a young robin that's hopping around the lawn, you put him back in the nest, he'll jump right out again. Once they get out of the nest, they're not going back. They don't want to go back. If you find a baby that uh, hasn't got feathers on it or anything, it's it's still still altricial. It needs the warmth of a mother. If you can find the nest, put it back there. That's the best thing. And uh, the, the best thing is to... Um, 
not try to um, take over yourself and raise them. You'll find out that they eat all the time. Uh, Gary Johnson and I were talking about it, and he said they just uh, they eat constantly. Well, it's like kittens. If you ever found baby kittens that the mother dies or something happens, I mean, they you really have to be up all hours of the night to keep feeding them. So I assume it's pretty much the same with the robins. It is. They just, and they are eating and pooping machines. <laughs> uh, everything runs through their system just lickety-split. So it becomes nearly a full-time job, and it's uh, great. We have places like the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center, the only bad thing I can say about them is I wish they were in Casota oh, or yeah. St. Peter or somewhere, Mankato, somewhere much closer. But they just do wonderful, wonderful things. So it's uh, the best thing usually with uh, nature is to uh, let it be. And I know it's sad sometimes, but if you can get a young bird and get it out of harm's way where there's predators or lawn mowing, uh, go ahead and do that because the mother birds do not recognize your scent on there. They're still going to be mamas. They're going to still try to save that bird. Are there any animals uh, that recognize a human scent that wouldn't touch their their babies afterwards? Because I know growing up, that's the thing that your parents always said was, well, don't touch them because then their parents will reject them and they'll die. Is that the case with most animals that they do or, or don't? Or is it just a thing your parents told you so you didn't bother I, them? Yeah, it was a thing I think our parents told us to, <laughs> so we'd we'd leave them alone, you know, and didn't, look what I found, Mom, this baby skunk, and I put it in the <laughs> living room, and that kind of thing, because that's what kids do. Um, mammals, a lot of the mammals could certainly recognize our, our scent on young ones. Will that cause them to uh, abandon them? I think not, because oh. the one thing that's real important they are still mothers, and we all know how moms are, so they're still going to hang in there. Uh, but birds, there's no worries there whatsoever. Uh, Gunnar Berg of Albert Lee said he did not remember seeing so many gray squirrels when he was growing up in Clark's Grove and asked if his memory was faulty. Uh, no, your memory's sharp as a tack, Gunnar. Uh, gray squirrel numbers have increased due to several things. In some areas, there's a suburban sprawl, and the squirrels frequent visitors to backyard bird feeders. They have become birds. Uh, gray squirrels thrive where houses break up natural woodlands. They've proven to be adaptive and may have been helped by people who fostered squirrel populations by releasing them in public places. Oh. So through the years, a lot of people have hauled them in and let them go in, uh, oh, you know, the park in the middle of the town. Um, I haven't. Have you seen any toads in your little toads, baby toads? I have. I've seen baby toads. I've seen big toads. And uh, I saw a big one by my garden in, in town last night. I've seen a lot of them, including the baby ones out by the lake house. Um, so, yes, I've, I've seen lots of toads and really excited because I think they eat things that I don't want eating my garden. They definitely eat slugs. So yes. that's, uh, that makes them my friend. Me too. I, anything that eats slugs, I'm, I'm on their team, and I'm thinking of buying them uniforms or something <laughs> if they'll wear them. I have not seen any um, little ones yet, oh. but I, I would think any day here. I know uh, Patty Kelly got a hold of me. She lives up in Hopkins, 
and she said uh, she had one of those open window wells, and she got them all out of there. She had 15 toads. Oh, my goodness. And one frog were trapped down in there, and she was said she felt pretty good about getting them out of there. But, boy, what a job. And she said she has to keep checking because she's not sure if she got them all. Well, and, would um, they die down there then is what you're saying? or They'd probably be all right for a long time, but uh, sooner or later there'd be problems just oh. because of such a small space. And they, uh, there are, we've, my wife and I watched the, the breeding of American toads down at the Blazing Star Trail. Blazing Star Trail. And uh, we watched this uh, breeding frenzy of American toads, and they will lay up to 20,000 eggs. Whoa. Now, they don't all lay 20,000. Some might lay 2,000, because, boy, 20,000, that's got to be a daunting task. And they normally hatch within a week. And then you get, I know you have them, these large schools of tiny black tadpoles that feed together along the edge of shallow wetlands or mm -hmm. ponds or, or pools. And they emerge as tiny toads in approximately six weeks. And they don't become a truly mature toad till they're two or three years old. Really? And during the winter, the American toad burrows beneath the ground, usually in sandy soils. And they need to get below the frost line, otherwise they're going to have problems. And somehow they know how to do that. So if you don't have sandy soil, because generally we have a lot of clay here, where do they burrow in, in my yard? Because there's going to be so many of them with all the eggs I'm seeing. So where where are they headed to? Yeah, and not a very large percentage of them survive. Oh. So they, um, yeah, the, the herd is culled. And then they will, uh, they move around and they find places where they can um, um, hunker down for the winter. You mentioned you were having fun with your raspberries. Now, I am, oh, I am a chronic raspberry mm. eater. I have black cap raspberries growing everywhere. I love them. They're just the best things on earth. I put a little milk or cream on them and gobble them down for breakfast and I go out there and I pick them. They shred my hands, and uh, and uh, if I wear shorts, which I do when I do that, they cut me up a little bit. But oh, it's worth it. They're so good. Mosquitoes eat me, and <laughs> it's just good. But you're having some uh, some problems with a, I think, an invasive species. Well, it hasn't started yet, but we harvested our first raspberries this past weekend, which I am absolutely thrilled about. But what happens is we've got that spotted wing. Drosophila, I think that's how you say it. It's a little fly, yep. and it lays eggs, and they say that um, they've been collecting them recently in traps. Uh, as of June 16th, they've collected traps in Forest Lake, Rosemount, Hastings, and Chanhassen, and it won't be long before they're down here. And what they do is they lay their eggs in the fruit, and so what happens is then you end up with these larvae if you pick a nice berry and it's just gross because who wants to eat larvae not me maybe it wouldn't harm me I'm sure but it's just gross so have you ever had issues with them but I think they also infect other types of fruit as well yeah I I have not it's um, these are they're invasive small fruit flies and some people even call these vinegar flies and I know there's a lot of different fruit flies that are called vinegar flies but these guys are really small Oh, uh, maybe a twelfth uh, of an inch to mm -hmm. eighth of an inch. They're yellowish brown, and as you might expect, they have some uh, dark-colored bands on them. Uh, they, uh, 
they're difficult to distinguish from other species. I mean, they're so small, and like a lot of you folks in school, we raise fruit flies, and so we know how small they are. And they primarily attack raspberries, blackberries, uh, cane berries, what we think of as cane berries, but also blueberries, and they think they might be into strawberries and grapes, which would be terrible, like grape needs another pest. Right. They're native to Asia, and they're just another thing that's come over here. And uh, it's the larva that gets in there. Uh, They don't have legs. They're really small. They're an eighth of an inch. And we usually see them, oh, I would say late June, early July, Mm -hmm. probably in that, and maybe peak in August. And they're another nasty thing. And I hope they find all kinds of ways to to get rid of them because they don't feed on the bad fruit, the stuff that we wouldn't pick because we look at and say, oh, they feed on the healthy, intact, ripening fruit. Oh, and because, and I've noticed that some birds have been pecking away at it too, so I've got that and, you know, nets can help with that, but... I've had that in the past. I don't have never actually seen the flies, but I know that's what it is because usually what happens is then by the time I see it, it's been, you see the, that larva in there. And one of the things they say is, you know, make sure to pick your berries on a regular, you know, basis yep. every one to two days, and that can decrease the infestation rates. And they say, you know, make sure you refrigerate your berries right away. But still, I think that ew, those things are still maybe in there. And then one of the things I've done in the past that has been a mistake is I always take the rotten berries and I throw them on the ground. Well, they say get that that um, infested or drop fruit out of the garden because what I'm basically doing is repopulating and allowing it to turn into adult flies. So now I'm going to have to be careful and make sure if, if I pick that, I put it somewhere and then dispose of it properly. So, you know. Yeah, I remember, I remember going to a class years and years ago, and they said, well, years ago, not that many years ago, <laughs> but anyway, they said to put the fallen fruit into plastic bags and seal it tightly and all these kind of things. So, Well, I'll try that then, this year because I didn't realize that before. I'm just like, ah, oh, it'll just be turning into compost. Apparently it turns into more flies. Yep, and then uh, if I remember correctly, you could leave the clear bags left outdoors once they were sealed, and then the heat from the sun kills any flies and things in the bag. Torture. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of. <laughs> yeah. Well, they eat your raspberries. You they know, deserve I think it. You have a right to be brutal to them. Yeah. Um, somebody, a listener said, when can I expect to see baby mud turtles? Oh. Uh, painted turtles. Yeah. And they begin laying eggs in late May. And I think they might get into July with their egg laying. The, Eggs hatch in 72 to 80 days, so that'd be what, late August into September. But some of the hatchlings overwinter in the nest, and they will emerge next spring. So some oh. hatch come out this year, some next spring. And studies of those guys have shown that about 80% of the nests are destroyed by predation, oh. and only about 5% of turtle eggs hatch, which is... It's sad. Where do they generally lay them? I mean, where would you find them? Is it along a shore somewhere? or? I see them along trails a lot where oh. I walk in the gravel, the roadside, the sandy roadside. And, and some will do them on beaches. We see them at St. Olaf Lake down along the beach area there. So I places where raccoons can find them, oh. sadly, uh, really quickly. And apparently they're really good eating because raccoons go nuts for them. I assume it has to be moist for them to survive, though, correct? 
I would sure think so. And the heat, uh, the temperatures decide whether more of them are going to be females or males that come out of the oh, eggs. Interesting. Uh, Todd and Kelly Bram of Rushford heard an unusual and beautiful song outside their porch, and the unexpected visitor was a Carolina wren singing Tee Kettle, Tee Kettle, Tee Kettle, and it came in their house. It went oh up on the, <laughs> got in the house, and they were surprised to find this in there. Uh, Brenda Katasik of St. Peter took photos of a leukistic house finch in Ottawa. Uh, leukism is an abnormal condition of reduced pigmentation as marked by a pale color or patches of reduced coloring caused by a genetic mutation which inhibits melanin and other pigments from being deposited in the feathers. So this finch had white feathers where it would typically have darker ones. Also, uh, Brenda told me of a trail cam that showed a bald eagle, red-tailed hawk, and a blue jay. Blue Jay all taking turns feeding on a dead deer. And she said it was so odd seeing that that Blue Jay. He just didn't seem like he uh, he fit in there with the, with the big boys. Uh, I appreciate Brenda's good work at the Hummingbird Garden in Henderson. Lots of hummingbirds. Gail and I stopped there and talked to her, and it was uh, it was amazing seeing all uh, all the good work and. They have so many hummingbirds there, you guys. Oh, my goodness. I can't recommend going there enough. Can you go there now, uh, even with all the COVID stuff? Is it... yeah, yeah. Oh, you can. Oh. Well, do you have to wear masks, or is there any restrictions, I assume? There, uh, when we were there, there was, let's see, there was four people there. Mm-hmm. And then one left, and one person came. So there's plenty of... Okay. You can uh, social distance really easy there. I I was going to ask Brenda how many feeders they have up. They have, oh, man, a lot of feeders. And you can look and see the feeders they use. They have one feeder that works out really well. I don't know the name of it. I have one of them at home. And they just, uh, they don't leak. They're just really nice feeders. So, um but yeah, you can sure wear a mask, and but there is a lot of spacing, so you'll be. Uh, I felt comfortable, you know. Isn't it terrible? You sometimes yeah. you don't feel comfortable. I, it, oh, man. If you wore a bright red mask or a bright orange one, would the hummingbird land on your face? <laughs> they would probably buzz you in the face okay. and say, "Who are you supposed to be? You don't. Where's the nectar, dude? You're supposed to be a nectar feeder." Uh, John Schladweiler, I saw a common gallinue uh, south of Medelia, and Bob Williams had a Hensel Sparrow in Rice County. And speaking of trail cams, Lugene Ingram of Hayward told me of her friend's trail cam showing a great horned owl attacking a cat. Oh, no. Uh, to the owl, the cat was just another possible food item. The cat survived with scratches. But... The cat no longer wants to go outside. Oh, so, I don't blame um, it. No, and it's just another reason, folks. Keep your your cat indoors if you can. It's just a, it's a, it's not good out there. Arlene Carr of Northfield sent me a snake picture, saying, "How's this for a nice snake picture? Look how long the tail in tail is. I think it's a garter snake. I took it at Lake Carlos State Park. I saved it from a young boy that wanted to pick it up." 
So also like this, also she sent me a picture of a wild rose, which is one of my favorite plants. So really nice of her to do that. Uh, Neil Bad of Heartland said less than eight feet away. Three out of four young woodchucks just came straight at me on the porch. Then eight dandelions. <laughs> I should learn to take videos. I I think you're trainable, Neil. And you, you might be able to learn how to do that. I, I you know you do share my last name, so I I wouldn't guarantee you'll be able to do that. But I uh, I hope everybody is uh, is having a good time. Man, take a look outside. It's this is a great time to watch birds. There's just so many things that are just right out in our yard, right out at our park, right on the trail, or at the Henderson Hummingbird Garden, or right out our windows. We just look outside and we see all these wonderful things right out the window. I, uh, I have a raccoon uh, coming in, a mama with four baby raccoons. They're like the cutest things on earth. Am I excited to see them? Not as much <laughs> as I should be. And I, uh, that's my problem and not theirs, but it's really cool to see them. And uh, the poor mom, she is put upon, they misbehave, they run and do things, and I'm sure she is just wondering what this next generation is going to amount to because they just will not behave. I, I was thinking of an Irish goodbye. I don't know how many folks are familiar with that. I grew up by Bath, Minnesota. It was an Irish community, and now it's a ghost town. An Irish goodbye refers to a person ducking out of a social gathering. Remember social gatherings? What? <laughs> they duck out of a social gathering without bidding farewell. You know, you just look around and say, where'd Kevin go? I don't know where he went. It's like the exact opposite of a Minnesota goodbye. <laughs> a Minnesota goodbye, once I decide to leave, I visit for an hour before I walk to the front door where we talk forever before walking and talking to my car, where my host talked to me through my car window for another hour. When I do finally drive off, I yell goodbye to my host who shout in return, come back when you can, watch for deer. <laughs> That's my advice, folks. Come back when you can, watch for deer. Remember, Heartland as well, we're driving past. Thank you as always, Karen. I appreciate your company. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Well, thank you, Al. We'll chat with you next week. Until then, happy Independence Day. Yeah, thank you. Same to you all. All right, bye-bye.